Welcome to the Legacy of John Williams podcast. I'm your host, Maurizio Caschetto, and this is a new installment of LA Studio Legends, a series of talks with legendary Los Angeles session musicians who performed on hundreds of film soundtracks, including many by John Williams. My guest today is flute legend Jim Walker. Jim Walker is one of the most talented and versatile flute players in the world. In 1969, he was appointed associate principal flute at the Pittsburgh Symphony, and then, in 1977, became principal flute at the Los Angeles Philharmonic Orchestra until 1985. In addition to his classical career, Jim Walker has been very active as a jazz player. In 1980, he started his own quartet called Free Flight, performing live and recording albums of jazz standards and classical pieces arranged for this unique ensemble. Jim Walker has been also one of the most active session players for film and television scores for more than 30 years. His list of credits is truly impressive and includes virtually every major film score recorded in LA from the early 1980s until the mid 2000s. Jim Walker has performed in the flute section in almost all John Williams scores recorded in LA in that period. His beautiful and unique tone has always been appreciated by Master Williams and can be heard as featured soloist in scores such as Far and Away, Amistad, Catch Me If You Can, Memoirs of a Geisha, and The River. In this conversation, Jim talks about his incredible career as a classical and studio player, recollecting his many experiences recording film scores with John Williams, and offers his own unique perspective on the maestro's music and his approach to music making. Today I'm very, very happy to have here with me uh, an incredible musician from Los Angeles, uh, Jim Walker. Thank you for being here with me today on the Legacy of John Williams podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you. You're certainly a very, you know, an incredible and versatile musician. You, you know, you are certainly a legend for, for every flute player around the world uh, because 
you know, your career, your musicianship go across a wide range of genre and experiences from classical to jazz and work in studio as a studio musician for, and you performed in hundreds of film scores uh, recorded in Los Angeles, including some of the world's biggest box office hits over the years, including many by John Williams. So first things first, I'd like to start to talk about your musical formation and background. So how and when did you decide that the flute was your instrument and to the point of becoming a professional player? Well, I'll try not to go on and on. I Sometimes when I start speaking about that path, I, I forget the time and there were a lot of steps along the way. But simply put, my uh, I grew up in a musical family. My father was a clarinet and sax player, uh, quite good in the Benny Goodman, Artie Shaw, Woody Herman tradition of those big bands of the 40s and 50s. And my mother was a church organist and had played violin in college. So I grew up in a musical uh, atmosphere. I was more or less requested to play the piano at the age of six, and I was fairly good at it, but it never really felt like my instrument. And then at the age of 10, when I'm in the, in the fourth grade, that, back in those days, this is in the 1950s, uh, the traditional age to start a, uh, a musical instrument other than piano was 10 years, 10 to 11 years old. My father had somehow come in possession of an old flute made by the company called Manhattan. I've never seen one since then, but it was a pretty bad flute. But he asked me basically, how would you like to play the flute? And it was like, oh, okay, why not? Years later, I was very, very grateful that he did suggest that rather than have me play the clarinet, because in fact, in our little town in Western Kentucky, he he was kind of a legend in a three-state area as being, you know, in that Benny Goodman mold. And he played music all the time. At about that time, when I started playing the flute, he became the band director at a small town seven miles away, which was the rival community to the town we lived in. So prior to that, he had just taught private lessons and he was my private music teacher. So choosing the flute was simply a matter of convenience. And I do remember that in those first two or three weeks, it felt horrible. I felt completely incapable of doing it. But the fact, say years later, I realized that it was a beautiful thing that he had me not play the clarinet or saxophone because I would have always been in his shadow. The, you have to understand, it's such a small town in a small part of the world. A high school bands were a pretty important thing, but our school was so small that we didn't even have a football team. We had a basketball, and in Kentucky, basketball is king. Yeah. So being in a small town, it was also very fortunate for me that I got to be an athlete as well as a musician. So throughout high school, where I ended up in that same school that he taught, I was able to play on the basketball team and also be a, a, a pretty good high school musician. And by the time I was a junior and senior in high school, I had some recognition throughout the state as one of the better players. And in fact, in my sophomore and junior years, in the summer, I went to a wonderful camp that was held at the University of Kentucky in Lexington, Kentucky, where it was kind of a, an introduction to college for three weeks, and you got to study with the college professor. And in fact, 
that was my first real flute teaching that I ever had. My dad had been, you know, like a, a woodwind specialist, and he taught me fantastic musicianship, but he didn't really teach me how to play the flute. And probably at the age of 14, he said, you know, I, I can't be your teacher anymore, but just keep playing. And so a lot of what I did in high school, which does kind of lead to the future, I played all the instruments. I played a lot of clarinet, uh, saxophone. Every day at lunch, I would go to the band room and actually practice drums, just trying to get that together. And then when I got to college at the University of Louisville, I actually played a soprano sax in the marching band at one point. I played drums in another year, and then I played tuba in my senior year in the marching band. So the fact that I even majored in music was kind of a last-minute decision. When I uh, was a senior in high school, it wasn't like today where a kid starts planning where they want to go to college when they're 14 or 15 mm -hmm. years old. Kind of at the last minute, I mean, it became clear that music was the thing I did best and that probably my best opportunity to have a career in music would be as a band director, mm -hmm. like my dad. So I went to the University of Louisville and I got a music education degree, but it was a, it was a great school for me because in those days, the Louisville Orchestra was quite good for a small regional orchestra. They had a contract to record six to eight new albums each year of all contemporary music. Mm -hmm. So in fact, in those days, this would have been probably 1958 until maybe 1970. That orchestra was a phenomenally strong sight reading orchestra, very mm -hmm. much like fast forward to the movie orchestras in LA, because yeah. they would make these recordings very highly respected mm -hmm. of this very difficult contemporary music. One of the main reasons that I went to Louisville was that I was kind of promised or told that there might be a chance for me to be an apprentice member of the Louisville Orchestra mm -hmm. in doing that and going to school there. And that potentially was going to happen in my sophomore year. Well, it turns out that didn't work out because the young lady who had the position when she graduated decided to stay on. <laughs> so I, for those two years, my sophomore and junior year, I did not get to do that. But as a senior, I got to be a member of the Louisville Orchestra as an apprentice. And it was great. I got paid $11 for every service that I paid, played <laughs> either a rehearsal or a concert. But it was a remarkable experience. And I would say this, uh, even though I continued with my music education degree, assuming I would probably be a band director, maybe get a master's degree in uh, woodwind doubling, because even through college, a lot of my time I spent playing in the pit orchestras, doubling on sax and clarinet. I wasn't really great at either of those instruments. I was always primarily a flutist, uh, and I especially loved the piccolo. But somewhere around the age of 20 to 21, I had a lesson with a very important mentor in my life. His name was Claude Monteux. He was the son of the famous conductor Pierre Monteux. Uh -huh. And Claude, in a very humble but very pointed way, said, well, Jim, I've, if you want to be a real flute player, it's probably not going to work out for you to be a good sax player. And you're mm -hmm. probably going to have to make a choice. And that was really devastating to me because I did, even though I wasn't good at the sax, I did enjoy, you know, playing in a rock and roll band, playing tenor sax in a rock and roll band and playing in those uh, Broadway musicals. Mm -hmm. But when I graduated from college, uh, it was in the middle of the Vietnam War. And I was very fortunate 
because my band director from Louisville had a one of his best friends was the commandant of the United States Military Academy band at West Point. And he suggested that three or four of us submit audition recordings to this band, that it would be a good way for us to, to do our military service. Okay. Uh, and fortunately, I was accepted into that band. And so at the age of 23, me along, uh, myself, along with two other of my colleagues from the University of Louisville, all ended up in the West Point band. And that was life-changing for me in that I, the first day that I walked in, I was surrounded by a higher level of wind playing than I'd ever heard in my life, especially mm -hmm. people my age. And it just shocked me into realizing that I was pretty good, but I wasn't even close to the level of most of these players. So it took me about a year to recover and realize that I either was going to make a choice of going back to school to get a master's degree and become some sort of public school or university teacher, hopefully, or maybe I could work hard, hopefully, and get a chance to become a performer, to get a job in an orchestra. And so for from the age of 20, late 23 until the age of 25, I practiced the hardest I'd ever practiced in my life. And I had my most important mentor outside of my father, who I will always give credit to. But Harold Bennett became my private teacher. Harold Bennett was the former principal flutist of the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. And uh, for at least a year and a half, almost two, I took private lessons from him, driving two hours down to New York City late at night to start my flute lesson at 10 p.m., finish at 11 or 11.30, and then drive two hours back to West Point. But it was a period of time where I became the most dedicated I ever had been in my life. It turns out that in that third year in the army, an audition opened up for the Pittsburgh Symphony and I was able to win that position. Yeah. So I'm um, sorry that was very, very long, but <laughs> no, it's, 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 it's okay. Absolutely. I mean, it's fascinating because I think that speaks volumes about a professional musician, how much he has to, to go and to, you know, how long is the path to, to land maybe at the end a prestige post in an orchestra or in a professional uh, band and so on. So it's fascinating. So it, I mean, getting the job in the Pittsburgh Symphony was shocking to me. And especially it was shocking to a lot of my colleagues in the West Point band. <laughs> and I never will forget when I came back after winning that audition, it was like all of a sudden people were, whoa, <laughs> this, the guy who played seventh flute in the flute section <laughs> who played cymbals in the marching band actually got a job. Whoa. <laughs> in a very prestigious orchestra. Yeah, it was it was a phenomenal job. Mm -hmm. So at any rate, uh, so all of a sudden, I not all of a sudden, but in that three year period, I became a professional flutist, very dedicated to trying to get my flute playing chops to the highest level.
and then in 1977, you ended up at the Los Angeles Philharmonic and became principal flute there, right? Mm-hmm. Indeed. And uh, it seems that back then, a lot of the LA field players also did work simultaneously as studio musicians for films and television uh, soundtracks. I mean, was there a constant back and forth between the so-called two words of the classical and the film world? Well, let me say this. First of all, there was this underlying, I don't think rivalry is the best word, but the fact of the matter is the full-time studio musicians did not love the fact that someone who had a full-time job in the L.A. Phil was actually coming in and taking a spot from someone who was a purely freelance musician. Mm -hmm. So the numbers uh, back in... So I was in the L.A. Phil from 77 to 85. I would say in reality, out of the 100 members of the orchestra, truly maybe a maximum of 10 of those players were doing much studio work. And in fact, uh, it was probably in reality, five or six of us were doing quite a bit of work. And for me, that ended up especially occurring after 1980, which is simultaneous to when I had organized my jazz group Free Flight. Yeah. composers who worked together for many years, Mike Post and Pete Carpenter, they took a liking to my playing and I started doing a lot of their television soundtracks for a good long period of time. And in fact, because I had fairly steady employment with them, that Mm -hmm. gave me the courage to then leave the LA Phil in 1985. So I'll always be grateful that they wanted to hire me. But in fact, it wasn't a big number. A lot, I, I would say mm-hmm. over the years, a few people would leave the orchestra in order to do studio work. The most notable okay. one was Luis de Tullio, my flute playing colleague, yeah. who as a 19-year-old won the piccolo position, maybe even 18, won the piccolo position in the L.A. Phil. But after a couple of years, started getting opportunities in the studios, and she went full bore into the studios early on. And probably along with Sheridan Stokes are the most recorded flutists in the history of the world. <laughs> yeah, you can see we can hear them in the maybe thousands of movies probably and yeah. television shows. Uh so 
back then, John Williams already had a kind of a relationship with L.A. Phil in the late 70s uh, when Zubin Mehta conducted music from Star Wars in concert, the symphonic suite. And also Williams started to appear more as a guest conductor with the L.A. Phil around the same time, if I'm correct. So were you the soloist also on that great Zubin Mehta recording of the Star Wars suite? I was, and it was one of the highlights of my time in the L.A. Phil. I'm glad you brought it up, but because it was one of the things I wanted to recall, we got the message that we were going to have a recording session, maybe with one week's notice. And the recording occurred at UCLA's Royce Hall, which was John Williams' favorite place to record. But I don't know uh, if it's old news for you, but they completely reconfigured that auditorium mm -hmm. by building scaffolding out into the audience of at least... 30 to 40 feet where the string section was actually in the hall and the rest of the orchestra was on the full stage. Okay. We, uh, we made that recording and it was, it was incredibly amusing that here's Zubin Mehta conducting all of these great tracks from Star Wars and John Williams is kind of back in the wings, just kind of uh, quietly observing. <laughs> <laughs> It was just, it was the strangest thing. And then we would go back into the playback room and, you know, they certainly would confer. But that was my first real kind of close encounter with John Williams, even though I think, and I'm not sure, you might have records of this. I think he had conducted the Pittsburgh Symphony at some point, but I guess uh, so. clearly, clearly Star Wars was, was the explosion of his career.
and so that was more or less the time that you became also acquainted with his music so and did you get to know him better personally also when you started working more regularly as a studio musician i would say very few of us if any really became very like super tight super friendly okay. he was and is to this day one of the most cordial gentlemen and friendly nice appropriately behaved gentleman you could ever hope to meet uh, he's a private man and most of us knew very little about his private life probably some of the people of his generation when he was working in the studios as a staff pianist or as an yeah. arranger knew him more on a personal level and he's a totally cool guy but at the point where i got to know him he was in we were of such a we're at least one generation apart mm -hmm. um, so i wouldn't say as much as i would like to call him my friend uh, we were every time we had any encounter with each other it was always very friendly and to this day i you know will always be incredibly grateful for the opportunities i had with him in fact the the first real session that i did after i left the la phil in 1985, was working on his movie, The River, yeah, well, Mel yeah. Gibson's Sissy Spacek movie. And he talked to me about his concept of wanting to have kind of a bluesy flute. Uh, yeah. It was a, an incredible soundtrack. And for me to be involved in that, that was absolutely a career high at that point.
it's a fantastic score. Maybe it's less remembered than other more famous work of, of his, but it's beautiful. As you said, there are this beautiful bluesy, kind of also jazz-like feeling, especially in the solo flute and also the duet with the trumpet. So I think that was the first time he properly credited the studio musician as a soloist in, the, in one of his soundtracks. I'm old enough to remember buying the soundtrack album and hearing sure. the musicians' names. <laughs> and, and Jim Walker Flute. So that was a name that really popped up and I always appreciated your playing. So about that experience, um, did he ask you something specific about the sound he was looking for? Absolutely. So this is five years after I had started my band Free Flight and it's a quartet with piano-based drums and flute. And in order to be balanced... From the very beginning, I used an amp amplification. And uh, when I started the group, I went to a pawn shop and found an amazing old Fender Super Reverb amplifier. And in fact, you had used that in all of my live gigs when I played with Free Flight starting in 1980. And when he talked about the concept of what he wanted for this movie, he said, I, I kind of want a, a, a reverby kind of maybe echoey sound. And I said, well, I think, you know, I've got, you know, I had a few effects loops and things that I, I could bring. And so in the first day, I hauled my amplifier in there and with the reverb pedal, and I may have had a, a delay on it also. And we came up along with Danny Wallen, the engineer, we came up with a sound. So he mic'd the amplifier and he also had the live, the mic on my live flute playing came up with a sound that had that, a little bit of a haunting, reverby kind of sound. He specifically wanted that, and 
he loved Warren Looning's trumpet playing uh, for anything that was kind of crossover. And mm -hmm. it was very interesting because down the road, Warren Looning and I ended up being in three different movies that featured flute and trumpet. They were river movies. The other <laughs> one was A River Runs Through It by Mark Isham and The River by Jerry Goldsmith. <laughs> That's amazing. So the combination <laughs> works for rivers. <laughs> Jerry was another, you know, amazing guy. We could have a whole other conversation about, you know, the, the fantastic Jerry Goldsmith. Yeah. Uh, but back to the river, there are also some beautiful duet between uh, flute and guitar by the great Tommy Tedesco, the fantastic player. So was all of that written down or was there some improvisation work as well? All of mine was written down and I expect Tommy's was partially written down. I'm sure a lot of what he was doing was just on, you know, from chord changes. But I never will forget, that's the first time I'd ever experienced a 12-string guitar with mm -hmm. that unbelievable sound. And uh, it was it was thrilling just to hear that coming from the other side of the room or in my headphones. Tommy was <laughs> just a ridiculous character and a legend. I mean, I, I count that as a big a big experience, a big bonus in my life.
So since then, we can say that you became part of virtually every John Williams score recorded in LA, more or less, until you retired from studio work in 2010. So one thing I'd love to know is how the section was built and how the parts are split up between the players. I mean, when you're playing a solo or being the principal or leader of the section, so is that something completely up to the composer or in the case of John Williams, or does the contractor also have a role in putting together the section? It's uh, 100% up to John Williams. And Sandy de Crescent basically builds the orchestra around his request. And I would say over the years, over the more or less 30 years that I did projects with him, there would be changing configurations. And he, he I think he cherished his independence and his privilege of choosing the players that he wanted to be in particular spots. Mm -hmm. And a couple of times he decided to move on and change personalities. And it was very, very tough on the people who had worked for him forever. Mm -hmm. uh, but I always respected that. In fact, it was his, his call and that as loyal as composers are to players who kind of got them there, they also do have the privilege of make, making choices. Of course. And in the flute section in particular, the legacy kind of the, the history is that Sheridan Stokes played principal flute for him a lot. Louise Dottilio Piccolo, I would say in the 70s and some of the more unknown movies. And that kind of continued into the 80s. And when I started filtering in, let's say, I didn't do many projects with him between 1980 and 85, mm -hmm. but I, I think I was on a couple. I couldn't begin to tell you right now. I would be generally the second flute player, sometimes the piccolo player. Mm. But also in those days, I was starting to get a reputation as an ethnic flute player also. Okay. I had uh, collected those and going back to my high school and college days when I played various other instruments, I was really comfortable with the idea of, you know, certainly playing piccolo, alto and bass flute. Mm -hmm. But I also was decent at recorder. I was pretty good at penny whistles and... I think John really appreciated what I was able to do on those. So in the, I would say up until, you know, at least the early 2000s, almost any time he had a movie that he wanted an ethnic flute, he would have me be the soloist on those passages. Yeah. Uh, it was uh, Amistad, where you also flute soloist? Yeah. Amistad, I, I did uh, a ton of ethnic flutes on that.
and uh, the um, what was the Irish movie? Uh, Far and Away. Far and Away. Phil Ailing, an oboe player, and I did a ton of penny whistle stuff. The Chieftains were the guest artists, but most of what John wrote was not really <laughs> able to be played by them because he had, <laughs> in addition to some great diatonic melodies, some chromatic things that are really, really tough on the penny yeah. whistle. <laughs> one of the most fun experiences we ever had. So in reality, I played first flute uh, for him quite a few times, but for the most part, Luis de Tullio was his principal mm -hmm. flutist. And Sheridan uh, was kind of, had done that, I'd say through the 70s. And then he became a section member. And then later on, uh, David Shostak was a member of the section often. Geraldine Rotella, uh, moved in probably in the late 80s and early 90s as either a second flute or piccolo player. And then later on, I'd say into the 2000s, uh, Steve Cujalo occasionally, but Heather Clark became yeah. uh, one of his go-to flutists. And how important is the understanding in, in between the section with the other players uh, when doing studio work generally? So is it the same when playing in standard symphony orchestra? Not at all. Hmm. Uh, the main difference in the studios is that you're hired for the job. It very well may be your last job if things don't go well. Okay. And things not going well means that there's someone in the section who actually wants to be sitting in the first flute chair and just doesn't make it really comfortable. So your job in a studio section is to make it sound good. If you're the 15th flute player, it's your job to make sure that you're in tune with number 14, 13, 12, and 11. And in fact, there's a, a code of behavior that I appreciated from the very beginning that I did studio work, that if your colleague next to you might be a little on the high or the low side of the pitch, they welcomed you saying, it sounds a little high to me. And very often we would ask the other person, do I sound low? Do I sound high? Or, you know, is my rhythm, am I totally on it? And so you, you absolutely have to work as a team. For those three to six hour sessions, it's up to you all to function as an amazing team. And I always felt that we did that. I rarely ever felt any, any craziness going on in, with any of those people in a section. Meanwhile, in a symphony orchestra, you, you've got such a different, first of all, a different demographic. I mean, within one section, you might have a 65-year-old and a 25-year-old, which was the case in the Pittsburgh Symphony when mm -hmm. I joined there. And so clearly, the young kid is the one who's going to get taught how to play a lot. And in the studios, even a young player who comes in, you're certainly going to help them, but you know that they're hired because they can play and it, it shouldn't be a tutorial session.
When speaking about uh, you know your studio work in your website, you say that recording for soundtrack is you know you know, sit a lot around waiting for directors making decisions and so on, and often you have to play you know unchallenging music. But sometimes, occasionally, someone comes in and you are given the hardest thing to to perform. Are there any scores you recorded with John that stuck in you with you in that regard? I mean, yes, being given particularly challenging parts. Jurassic Park, boom right to the top of the list. The very first day we, we get there, and generally John is so much more prepared than almost all of the other composers in that the score has been well-written and the parts, for the most part, a lot of times on some of his projects, the whole book would be on your stand the first day. And so you get there early enough to look through everything, and almost every page that we saw in Jurassic Park was just black. <laughs> so... You, if you ask, you know, the music editor or somebody, what, what, what do you think he's going to start with today so that I can have a, a special look at this? And, um, you know, that, that one rises to the top.
actually the most, I would say the biggest stressor for me ever was far and away, but not because of the penny whistle stuff, but because three days before those sessions started, I got a call from Sandy DeCrescent saying, uh, Jim, the pan flute player who was supposed to do start the session on Monday is having visa issues and is not going to be able to come to the session. Could you do the pan flute parts on this movie? And I was like, oh my, oh my God, <laughs> I, I own the pan flutes. And in fact, John had actually requested a meeting with me three months before to see what array of instruments we had. And as I was packing up, he saw the pan flute and he said, oh, Jim, what is that thing? So I picked it up and I said, you know, I'll, I can make a sound on it. I'm not really any good, but here it is. Do, 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 do. And you can see kind of the light bulb go off. I put, put the instruments up, went home, and three months later, or, you know, probably four weeks later, got the call for the sessions. And then three days before, I get the call, can you, can you do it? And it's like an idiot, I said, well, I'm willing to try. I'm not at all what I would consider an, uh, <laughs> any good <laughs> at this. And I'm happy to do it under these circumstances, but I absolutely have to be in an isolation booth so that when I destroy the music, they can redo it and I'll be separated. Mm -hmm. And for that whole, every time I had to do any of those, it was amazingly difficult for me because what he wrote was very, very beautiful. But for someone who doesn't really play that instrument, it was a serious, serious mm -hmm. challenge. So in addition to having me do it, he also brought in an electric wind player. Uh, those were the days of the wind synthesizer. Okay. And uh, I believe his name was Judd Miller, a remarkable talent. He actually recorded all of the things on the electric wind synth. And then it turns out on the very last day of recording, somehow, lo and behold, the guys, they worked as a pair, showed up to record some of the pan flute stuff. So in fact, I'd recorded my bits, Judd had recorded them, and then these guys recorded some of it. And after it was all said and done, John did say to me, and I, I, <laughs> I'll never forget it. I hope he meant it. He said, Jim, I have to say, I really liked what you did more than the other guys. <laughs> so he knew that I was under stress. And so that made me feel good.
he seems to understand very well what it takes to 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 be a a, a musician at that level i mean maybe because he comes from the band himself when oh, he works absolutely and he he comes from a family of brothers all of whom were studio players and so he he knew it firsthand and he's an incredibly brilliant man who who can read the landscape of almost every situation he goes into and you know when i go back to the years that i spent in the symphony orchestra to me the the best conductors were always the ones who had a real appreciation for what the player had to do and the one in particular that i think was enormously plugged into the mentality and the fragility of the musician was carlo maria giulini yeah working for him in the LA Phil was like working for a god in many ways because he never would do anything that would compromise your ability to play well yeah he had his standards he demanded but i never heard him say anything that would put the damper on a player's spirit yeah yeah And absolutely same with john williams yeah he seems to be very very caring about you know the respect to the musician the to the whole musicians and the way he creates a specific atmosphere you know like you're we are making music here we are not just you know doing movie business that right. seems to me that the main difference between him and other uh maybe even brilliant film composers and so and and john also wrote a, a flute concerto in the late 60s early 70s and i think it was premiered by previn With, with the Pittsburgh Symphony, I think, in, in the 80s or or around at that time. So uh, it's a wonderful experimental work, very different from his film music. And so did, did you have ever any chance to look at it and maybe wanted to perform it? I have looked at it. I've heard it performed by Sheridan Stokes, uh, who played it beautifully. Uh, it's probably not going to be in the top 10 list of flute concertos going forward because it was experimental, but the craft is amazing. I mean, the orchestration and the craft is amazing. I think my my understand or my personal take on his non-movie composing is it was more, it was almost like a hobby and a chance for him to do something that it was his own call. He wasn't having to answer to a director or a producer or a script. And I think he used it as a vehicle just to experiment and to explore the range of what an instrument could do, what a player can do, and what an orchestra can do. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's at least my take.
And instead, another movie that you had a pretty big part on was, I think, Memoirs of a Geisha. So uh, do you have any specific recollection of that score? Because it also features some very top-level soloists like Yo-Yo Ma and Isaac Berman. So how, how was that? It was remarkable. Uh, once again, we recorded that in Royce Hall with that uh, stage configuration. And it was a very small orchestra. And, you know, to be sitting there with... Perlman and Yo-Yo Ma, and uh, once again, my colleague Phil Ailing was also there. It was it was amazing. And personally, for me, the highlight was on the last day, the main solo that John had written, the main theme that Perlman had played, Yo-Yo had played, and he said, Jim, I, I think I'd also like to hear it on the flute. And so on the last day, I played it on the flute. And this may be the most embarrassing part of the uh, <laughs> interview. I've actually never, <laughs> I've never really watched the movie or heard the full soundtrack <laughs> because I'm basically not a movie guy. <laughs> but, but I I had heard from other people that, in fact, he did use my flute solo at some point, maybe in the end credits. I'm not sure. But <laughs> yeah. well, there's some fantastic woodwind playing all over the, that score, which is, which is another probably less remembered score than, you know, than Star Wars or Indiana Jones or other, you know, big right. fanfare right. kind of stuff. But it's so authentic in the way also he explored, you know, the, the oriental textures and yeah i mean it was it was a remarkable book my it was one of my wife's very favorite books of all time and i do own the c the dvd so now maybe in this pandemic some night i'm going to pull the dvd out maybe i'll go right to the end to see if i can hear myself on the end credits but <laughs>
I was just thinking, I don't know if you uh, were going to talk any about the movie The Patriot that he did. I wanted to ask, actually, I have a pretty long you know, <laughs> list of questions about some of the movies you've played with, but I don't want to be so tedious. I mean, but I know that The Patriot was particular because he used a lot of piccolos, uh, an entire section of piccolos. Is that is that right? Oh, it was phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, once we started scoring it, uh, he told Sandy, and he, he may have actually talked to me about it. He said, Jim, I, or Sandy, for the, for the end credits, I've got this little thing I wrote that I, I would like to have, I think, 15 piccolo players on. My 15? 15. <laughs> so Sandy said, Jim, I need a list. I, I can only go <laughs> about eight deep. So basically, uh, on that final day when we did the end credits, we had three different piccolo sec, four different piccolo sections. In the cello section, right behind them were four players. Behind the violins were four more players. Three of us were in the middle and four more someplace else. And it is it is fantastic. And I got uh, copies of both the first and the second part. And it was really challenging and really difficult. Yeah, because it's it's kind of a fife and drum. Is that right? Kind of style? Exactly. Total fife and drums. And to hear that body of piccolos playing, it's just so cool.
Uh, one of my best friends and colleagues, Richard Bean, who's a bassoonist, colleague teacher at the Coburn School, Coburn Conservatory, I was visiting him a couple of months ago. I said, they were looking for a movie. I said, hey, why don't you dig up The Patriot and, and let's go to the end credits. And they were blown away by it. It was so much fun. But also on that movie, it, it was thrilling for me because I also played a, a wooden ethnic flute and did some duets with Mark O'Connor on that. Uh, the violin player. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And that was another great musical experience for me to, you know, to be kind of on the same length of a guy that I had enormous respect for. John seems to be very aware about the the fact that when he writes something, he writes for the people. You know, he has a specific sound in mind because the music had to be, you know, tied to the to the images, to the story, to the movie. Yep. Uh, but he's always very very considerate about you know this is gonna be played by this guy or that lady. You know, he is. And then beyond that, it's always about does this serve the movie? And I've heard him say it many many times. Well, to Stephen. Well, Stephen, does does this? I'm a little suspicious. This doesn't fit the music. Does, is this really what we're looking for? And you know, that's why he's John Williams. And talking a little bit about some of the challenging parts, I, I'd like to pick up on a couple of things. Did you also play in the movie Hook by Steven Spielberg? I, I did. That that is another you know crazy score from the woodwind Absolutely you know perspective. <laughs> I mean, there are some crazy woodwind parts over there. Crazy like real crazy. But you know what my enduring memory of that score is? Is that at some point he wanted to have ocarinas. And so Phil Ailing and I played the ocarinas. I forget what it was, but yeah, it's uh, at some who knows when it is.
there's a lot of music in that film. You know, he wrote kind of three hours of music. Yeah, I mean, very, very challenging and fun. So the reaction when you open up the book, the <laughs> what is uh, usually? It's well, like, it's yeah, it's like oh my god, uh, <laughs> he's got the piccolo playing pianissimo on a high A. Okay, I guess he knows we can do it, but boy, better get ready for that one. Yeah, yeah, and then you have to be very good. I mean, he usually doesn't like to do you know a million takes. From what I understand, he always likes to do a couple of run-throughs and then he starts recording immediately. Is that right? That's right. With one. Um, addition from the beginning he was real clear that the recording process is actually a matter of fitting pieces together his goal primary goal was to get a great finished product and generally that involves editing and that it involves a lot of pickups yeah and yeah. sometimes as an alternate to what he already had or sometimes specifically just to have the second viola play softer i okay. mean So from the beginning, uh, there was no apology about it. And in fact, that was very revealing to me that this was, it was almost like a laboratory project for him, uh, that you want the spirit of the playing to be there. But in fact, the engineering part of it was separate and very, very critical to getting the final product where we yeah. needed it. Yeah, that's that's very interesting because he's very very smart in the way he organized probably the the, the recording process. The, the way absolutely, he, he's very rarely smart. rarely would we go overtime. Mm -hmm. I mean, he he is a very methodical guy with crafting how many sessions it's going to take to do all of his music. Very seldom did they add many extra days to a project, as he's just you know he's a, a cut above. What <laughs> anything else I experienced in terms of total preparation and understanding, and, and no, and and one last thing about you know some of sp the specific movies you played, uh, Indiana Jones. I think it was the second one. There, there is this crazy, crazy cue where he wrote this very, very fast piccolo line that goes um, under an action scene where the, the Indiana Jones is on a kind of a roller coaster ride. <laughs> Do you remember that? I. <laughs> remember it but i did not get a copy of that music very often we would ask the music librarian if we could steal the music and they'd say <laughs> oh, okay 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 or i can make a copy for you what i can't remember is if it was a solo piccolo or if in fact two or three of us were playing it in unison and that's what i suspect might have been the case yeah yeah because the sound is very very high very piercing yeah. and yeah. Very, very also very big for 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 a piccolo section
say about the flute players that he liked. He really, he never said this, but I know he wanted us all to be great piccolo players. Uh, mm-hmm. That was that was just clear that that you knew, and and in fact, Louise, Sheridan, and myself, and uh, Jerry Rotella, all of us really prided ourselves on being good piccolo players. Yeah, because usually when you hear piccolo in his scores, it adds that magic flavor because it's usually doubles some some string line and it enriches, you know, the the perfume of the of the music, you know. It's fantastic the way he uses type with the glockenspiel as well, you know. He's a genius orchestrator in this sense. Unbelievable. think John helped film music as a discipline, as a, as a genre, we can say, to be more respected and acknowledged over the years? Without question. I mean, you mentioned Jerry Goldsmith. Jerry, uh, a contemporary of, of John's, unfortunately passed away. But the two of them, for sure, through the 70s and 80s, were writing music that was would stand on its own. And certainly it served the film, but but just as something to listen to and to be respected, for sure. I mean, I would give him absolutely the main portion of the credit and all of the great composers who have followed him, you know, the subsequent generations have all upped their game in order to attain that kind of status with the quality of their scores. Absolutely. I think that he and Jerry have been probably the most important of the second generation of Hollywood composers, you know, after the 60s and the 70s. So that is very important. You played a lot with Jerry as well. So do you have any specific memory of working with Jerry on some scores? He was just 
so brilliant, and I love that he always loved odd meters. He always loved to write things in fives and sevens, and th that was always that was kind of fun for all all the musicians. Jerry was a very uh, he was just a total character. Just he had a very short but small fuse that would boom, and then he's back, and. Uh, it was just always it was always fun to be in his orchestra. I I played first for, flute for him a few times, but for the most part, I would end up being in the section. And and in the words of many of my friends, it's just great to be invited to the party. I my, the essence of my joy in being a session player was not about being a principal flute player. It was about being at the party. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a that's a beautiful way to to probably to encapsulate the feeling of of, of the studio musician. So you devoted a lot of your life also to teaching uh, young flute students. So how much important is for you to to give to give back to the new generations of of players? Well, it's what it's the driving force in my life now. I'm still actively trying to play the flute. I mean, things have slowed down, and I'm not not at the level I was when I listened to some of my recordings from twenty and thirty, forty years ago. It's like whoa, I couldn't begin to do that now if I had to. But I would say 80% of what I'm doing as a flutist is mentoring and teaching. And I'm, it, it, I just had a conversation with one of my contemporaries, a, a, a dear family friend. Uh, we've known each other forever. We're both well into our 70s. And he said, you know, you, I can see why you'll never retire because the teaching feeds you so strongly. Uh, you know, it really, it energizes you and it, it gives my life meaning. I mean, I, 
to some degree, I end up being some sort of father mentor figure in the lives of so many really hungry, deserving, and talented students. So I do like that. And I also have my father and my mother was also a, a public school English teacher. But I think I recognized 25 or 30 years ago that performing is definitely what I love to do. But at essence, I, I'm a teacher at heart. It's uh, it's kind of the way I think. It's, it's, it's the way I, I'm able to share you know, my, my love, my appreciation, my enthusiasm for music. And the thing that, that always, that I cherish more than anything is the, the notes I'll get from a student that appreciate the time they had with me, not just for the flute teaching. And it's one of the things I, I pride myself on is trying to be more than just someone who can teach you how to play the flute. Jim, I want to really thank you for, for the, from the bottom of my heart to have spent some time with me talking about your incredible musicianship, your artistry, and your work with, with John Williams and the other great film composers. Well, it's my pleasure. It's, it's, it's bringing up, in some cases, things I had completely forgotten about. And <laughs> it's like a, a wonderful memory. And uh, I'm, I'm thrilled that uh, I could be a small part of this. And just kind of in closing uh, with... You know, in my life, I've been very fortunate to be around some of the most amazing musicians in the world. And certainly John Williams is, is at the top of that list. So, Jim, thank you very much for your time with me. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks to Jim Walker for his time and generosity. Visit thelegacyofjohnwilliams.com for more articles, interviews and podcast episodes with esteemed musicians. From Maurizio Caschetto, thank you for listening until the next episode of The Legacy of John Williams podcast.